The second thing I had to learn was that failure was something I always got through. I felt terrible during these challenges. I felt terrible when I threw an interception. I felt terrible if I got rejected for a job. Somehow, two days later, three days later, life just moved on. And failure was my greatest teacher. And once I learned to not fear failure, not like it, but not fear it, my risk profile changed. And I learned, for me, I think I learned to take calculated risks, not emotionally driven risks. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Chip Adams is the chairman of the Center for Conscientious Leadership, a board member at Under Armour, Wellbe Health, Anthos Capital, and Morgan Stanley's Expansion Capital. In this episode, Chip and I discuss why he invested in Under Armour, what made Kevin Plank special, and what ultimately led him to join Under Armour as the chief performance officer. Chip also talks about a phase in his early career where everything looked amazing on the outside, but on the inside, he was drowning in self-doubt, and how a moment of honesty with three men he looked up to changed the course of his life. This was a special conversation with a truly amazing person. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter. Just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with a desire to improve. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Chip, thank you for taking time today for us. I really appreciate it. Hey, Eric. It's great to see you always, and it's great to be here tonight. So I'm really excited about unpacking your story because there's a lot of things I'm just personally curious about. But I want to start with just how you got into private equity. By accident. Let me start off by saying that everything I say to you tonight is looking back in hindsight. Hindsight is easy. At the time, things are hard. And so I just want to make sure that when we talk about these lessons learned, that let's realize that looking back, there were some good things, but at the time, there were a lot of challenges. So private equity. I would say the Instagram version is, I went to a great undergraduate school. I went to Wall Street. I went to Stanford Business School. I went to Bain & Company, and I got into private equity. How it really happened was that when I got to Bain, I went to our new office in San Francisco, and great people. We didn't have any clients. I think we had two clients. There was nothing to do. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal in 1982 about these guys, Kohlberg, Kravis, and Roberts, KKR, they didn't call it that, who were buying companies with debt. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. And so I went to Bill Bain and said, who is the founder, but at the time it was only 50, 75 people, so we all knew each other. And I said, mm. Bill, what if we bought a company? He said, wow, that's a fascinating idea. What do you know about it? I said, nothing. <laughs> and he said, put a plan together. So I presented the plan to the 20 partners. 19 partners said no. Bill had 55% of the votes. He said, why don't you take a year and see what you can do? So wow. three or four, and I was 25, years, 26 years old. So I had three or four 
young research associates working with me to try to find a company that we could buy. Hmm. And what I knew about buying companies you could put in a thimble. Can I ask you a question about the other associates or partners that voted against this? I mean, you're 25. Was there any kind of animosity that he was taking a flyer on this one? No, I think there was the, I think the other partners were looking at this the way they should have, being who they were, that Bain was a up and coming, rising consulting firm with a brand name. And we were going to move away from our core business and take a risk. And if it failed, it could really hurt our brand. And it was a 25-year-old kid who had done well, but what did he know? So if I were one of the other 19, I would have been right with him. Mm -hmm. But Bill Bain didn't say, go do it. He said, let's look at it. And over the next 15 months, we learned about how you actually buy them. I brought some experts in because I was able to. I brought in Marty Lipton from Wachtell Lipton. He was the number one lawyer in these acquisitions. And God bless Marty. He, you know, he was very kind to a young kid who said, can I bring my boss, Bill Bain, in? And we learned together about what it might take. Maybe, of course, learning right along with everybody else. And so we had our sights set on buying a $100 million company. And the first company that we could afford, because it wasn't $100 million, was a $5 million airline charter business in Las Vegas. And that's how we got into private equity at Bain. And that's how I cut my teeth on private equity. And I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. For me, far more interesting than consulting. So what happened to that private charter company in Vegas? Well, the private charter company in Vegas was run by some superb people. Mm-hmm. And despite all of our naivete on doing the transaction, we forged a great partnership with the owners of this company and another team at Bain. Mm-hmm. And it did extraordinarily well. I did not stay to the fruition of that company because I moved on to actually a venture capital fund. Mm-hmm. But because of the success of this company, Key Airlines, it was then that Mitt Romney stepped up and took over the idea, uh, which mine was an idea, Mitt built Bain Capital. Mm. But it took the success of Key Airlines and time for the partners to absorb the idea that this could be a valuable thing Mm -hmm. and not too much of a risk. But it was really Mitt and another group of folks back in Boston that took the idea and then turned it into what it is today. There's a word there I want to kind of double click on is the word risk. And so when you're acquiring a company with debt, there's risk. When you're in venture capital, there's a lot of risk. How do you evaluate risk? What is your process for making these kinds of decisions? So, you know, Eric, again, it's all individual. When it comes to risk, we are all so different. And the thing that's most important is to realize that there are so many different ways to succeed with so many different risk profiles. So let me just give you what I've learned a little bit from my life and career, because I had to learn from failure. I was the product of a large Catholic family in a small town in a small community where my dad took a bad risk when I was 12 and went bankrupt. 
And four weeks later, I'm walking over with my mom to Father Wickens to borrow 20 bucks for groceries. So that was a childhood experience that informed me to never do something too risky and to sometimes hold back on taking risk. And so for me, I had to learn. I had to become more self-aware that I was a product of that environment and that I didn't like taking certain risks. Once I understood myself, then I had a chance to actually take healthy risks. The second thing I had to learn was that failure was something I always got through. I felt terrible during these challenges. I felt terrible when I threw an interception. I felt terrible if I got rejected for a job. Somehow, two days later, three days later, life just moved on. And failure was my greatest teacher. And once I learned to not fear failure, not like it, but not fear it, my risk profile changed. And I learned, for me, I think I learned to take calculated risks, not emotionally driven risks. So for me, there's a big difference between taking thoughtful risks and just saying, I want to go do something. Like kids coming out of school saying, I want to go to a startup. That's a passion-driven risk as opposed to, okay, there's a risk to this. You know, we might put $20 million into a company. Okay, what are the chances that company is going to not make it? What are the chances that company is going to make 10 times our money? How much of our investment nest egg, our fund, are we risking on that? And do we trust the people we're taking the risk with? That became my, you know, a mantra of risk-taking for me. And one other thing, I always say that I'm probably the most courageous person, Eric, you've met 20% of the time. (laughs) And 60% of the time, I'm really good. But there's 20% of the time that I'm a withering wimp. And what I learned to do out of sheer necessity was be vulnerable and share and draw courage to do things from other people who knew me better than I knew myself. And that is so important to my picture of risk-taking is to share with those people who care about me more than my opinion of them. They care about my welfare and say, here's where I'm, what I'm presented with. And here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? And I've got a personal four-person, five-person board of directors who knows me deeply and will tell me exactly what they think. And that really informs my taking risks. This is fascinating. I I love the idea of board of directors. I've had that type of group in my life probably for the past 10 plus years of people that I consider older and wiser. And maybe maybe that board changes a little bit depending on the question or the situation I'm in. You know, I might go pull somebody out. But you talked about do I trust the people that we're taking the risk with? So I trust the CEO. Do I trust the organization? How do you evaluate that? The CEO, the, the leadership of an organization that you may buy or invest in? You know, I think experience is our best teacher when it comes to judging the capabilities and attributes of other people. We learn. When I built my first board of directors at age 29 for a technology company, I put three of the biggest stars of venture capital and technology on the board. 
And I thought I was a hero. They didn't get along. Mm. I failed. And what I learned was that the character and the chemistry and the respect and the trust is so much more important than capability. And so when I think about who do I trust, I think about, I do think about character. I think about going back in their life, going back into their personal lives, having lunch with their family. And how are they as people is really, really important. How do they solve problems? How tenacious are they at what they are trying to do? Do they have a history of friendships and relationships where they were equals, where they where they could give up control to people better than themselves. You find in the in the world of Silicon Valley a lot of great leaders, but you also find leaders that believe this is my idea, I own it, I'm going to build it the way I want to. That would not be an example of a person that you trust. I look mm-hmm. at Intuit and how the CEO is a very good friend of mine. He was founder, chairman, and CEO. He gave up the president the CEO title. He gave up the chairman title. He gave up all titles, and he was brilliant, and he still is today. He's the driving force, but he kept giving away responsibility and giving away the future and put it in the hands of people that he trusted. And by being able to be aware of what he wanted to do and could do, he put his best people in there. He would back a man like Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, every single day. Hmm. When you look at the market right now and how much money is being invested in venture capital, it's unbelievable. I think last year, going into COVID, there was more money sitting in these funds or ready to be invested than at any point in history. Part of that's also the, the growth of venture capital. Do you think that it this is taking a place across the board? Is, is it, you know what I'm saying? Or are there some that do it better than others? When you say some, you mean some? Some I mean, firms, some groups. It just seems like there's money, you know, you read Crunchbase or you look at any of these media outlets and they're talking about how much money is being invested right now. It's unbelievable. It's off the charts. Like having a startup is kind of the in vogue thing or maybe, you know what I'm saying? And the, the money is more available. Is it, is it being spent frivolously? Are people going through these same rigorous processes? Well, there's, there's, there's two questions here, Eric, to me. Yeah. One is you've talked about how much money there is available and how mm-hmm. much money these companies have. There are two driving forces, in my opinion, for that. One is that the pace of change just continues to accelerate. And they've talked about the pace of change in the last generation being equal to all the generations up to this one. Mm-hmm. And it's only increasing. The faster you have to change, the more expensive it is. So that's why you're okay. seeing a need for greater capital. Okay. The other thing is a macro issue that we will look back on and say, this is a point in the last thousand years of history. Because of 1% interest rates, there is nowhere else to put your money to make money other than equities as a large category. If our interest rates were 5%, there wouldn't be that much money in venture capital. But today, all categories of capital investing are flush with cash. Mm. And so you're seeing massive amounts of money being raised and massive amounts of money being put in 
at massive valuations. The question is, when does that stop? Mm -hmm. And the fact is that because of the U.S. debt structure and because our currency today is the only one for governments around the world to invest in, we control to some degree where interest rates are going to be. So people are looking out for the next five years and saying, we're going to have 1% interest rates so we can continue to invest massive amounts of money in massive valuations and we'll probably be okay. Hmm. Now, to your other question, are there some firms that do it better than others? Yes. There are firms that perform better than others over extended periods of time. And you can look at the firms. I mean, people will always mention a Sequoia. We'll mention a benchmark. There's a handful of firms. And they have a culture and a history and a network of people that all seem to make them a preferred investor that can bring just a little more value to the development of a company than others. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there are probably 100 firms today with really talented, really aggressive young people that are doing outstanding work. And they are now building their business on the back of one or two of their companies. And so it's not really limited to the four or five. There are four or five that are known to be better, Mm -hmm. but there are a hundred out there. One great example of how a younger firm has taken on the challenge of becoming one of the best is Anthos Capital, where F. Martin is a co-founder and on the board. And in 12 or 13 short years, they are on the short list of every institutional investor because they've had performance that is up there with the top 10 venture funds in the country. Hmm. So while there's concentration in some ways of the successful companies in venture funds, there's just an enormous number of funds that have had one or two or three or four good successes that are also mm-hmm. building their, their track record. Let's talk about one of the investments that you made, Under Armour. What did you see in this young company that made you think that they could take on the Goliath of Nike, especially when you were investing in them? Nike was huge, still is massive. Market share is astronomical. What, what, what did you see? The answer was, we didn't see anything other than a company that was growing fast. We had to learn, Eric. This was, un- this was uncovering a puzzle. We were trying to figure out, did Under Armour have a chance against Goliath? That, your, your question was actually the right question. What attracted us to it? It was doing $20 million on its way up to $50 million over in the year, I think 2002 or 2003, when we invested. And that caught our attention. Okay. Then I met Kevin Plank, the CEO, maybe the most tenacious person I've ever met, a tremendous visionary, a passionate man who inspired other people on on his journey with him. And he was an athlete. He was a fullback and a linebacker at University of Maryland. And think about that mentality. Yeah, you're speaking my love language here. I'm saying there, there, is no, there was no wall thick enough that Kevin Plank didn't think he could break through it. Mm-hmm. He also had a, an amazing curiosity and commitment to making his friends better, his 
athlete friends better. This is real. When Kevin started Under Armour, he weighed a shirt and it weighed two and a half pounds after a summer practice. He said, I can do better. I would perform better if this didn't weigh a half a pound. He created the wicking shirt Mm -hmm. because he wanted to be better. Can I tell you something about that shirt? I was playing football at Texas A&M in the early 99 to 03. And we're a Nike school. And Nike, you know, started, oh, we got to get into this thing. But we still called that shirt an Under Armour shirt. Everybody did. Yeah. And we'll get to, we'll get to Nike because I happen to love Nike. Yeah. But just to finish with Kevin, mm-hmm. Kevin was, he was on a, a mission to make a shirt that made athletes perform better. He wasn't selling it in retail. He was making it for teams. Mm. And when I met Kevin, his passion was clear. His tenacity was clear. I knew people that knew him and vouched for his character. But he had a commitment to the highest quality at whatever price to make his friends better. So the first thing I noticed was the passion and the relentless drive of Kevin Plank. The second thing we did, though, was go talk to customers, athletes. And I knew that I wasn't going to be the one to get the truth out of the athletes. So we knew this guy, and he, he had built the Gatorade business. When Gatorade stole the sidelines from Coke and Pepsi, mm-hmm. and one guy was in charge of talking to all of the equipment managers in Major League Baseball football, basketball, hockey, and the NCAA and all four sports. I said, would you go talk to 50 people, 50 equipment managers, and get their opinion of Under Armour? He came back and said, can I invest? I said, what do you mean? He said, he said what you said, Eric. Every single equipment manager, and then I talked to athletes as well, but the equipment managers make the decision. And I talked to the equipment managers, and they said that Under Armour isn't a nice to have, it's a must have piece of equipment. Yes. Is that, I mean, what was your, what was your- that was my experience. I mean, everybody wanted one because it was so stinking hot. And, you know, I grew up in Texas. You remember the old, they called them shimmel shirts, it's cotton t shirt yeah. that stopped at your belly button. Right. And that's what we wore. And it was just, you know, just miserably hot. And then it gets heavy. I, I, as you're talking about the story, it makes so much sense. When the Under Armour type of shirt came out, and there, I knew of schools where they were a certain brand, but the players were wearing that under their pads and getting in trouble. And because it was just so comfortable, it was moisture wicking, it was skin tight. And then when a breeze caught it in the hundred and something degree weather in Texas, it just felt so good. But as, a, as an athlete wearing, it, I thought it was fantastic. Well, you think about this, dude. Kevin was in his grandma's basement making these shirts on six sewing machines. And then somebody would drive down to the Atlanta Falcons training center and drop them off in their color. Then Florida State. This was a man on a boy. He was 25 years old, 22 years old. He was on a mission. Yeah. And you just realized that if he was going to apply that to his company, there was clearly something here. Mm -hmm. We didn't value the retail success 
hardly at all in our evaluation of risk. What we knew was the worst thing that could happen to this company, in our opinion, was that they would create this bond with college and pro athletes and somebody would buy them if that's all it ended up They'd acquire them, yeah. So you think about it, you asked a question about risk. Everybody said, what a risky investment. When you talk to customers, and we, I love talking to customers, and realize how much they bonded with not only this shirt, but the brand behind it. I am an athlete. I am a performance athlete. I'm an aspiring athlete. To think about circles just going out from each other, like throwing rocks in a pond, the premier athletes were the center. The high school athletes that aspired to be the college athletes were a ring out there. And then there were people outside that said, you know what? I'm still an athlete. And so you got the whole world to bond with this idea that if when I put this shirt on, I can do anything. Yeah. And that's how Under Armour built its business. And that was the reason we were able to invest in it. You just said something that really struck a chord with me for a lot of reasons, but you said the customers bonded with the brand. And I think that's so important. I just had Chris Doe on the podcast. Chris is a fantastic creative designer and brand expert. He's an Emmy award-winning designer. And he just said that he talked about, you know, a brand is a gut feeling that you get. And if you ask enough people and they all have the same gut feeling, you got a brand. You know what I'm saying? It's not a logo. It's not an image. It's that gut feeling. And you went straight to the customers, which I think is fantastic. And that's where you knew that this was a winner. Fast forward a number of years. When did you make that investment? I think 2003. So 2003. 2011, you come on board with Under Armour as what the chief performance officer, am I correct? Right. So you spent a long time on the West Coast. Did you move to Maryland? So in 2009, Kevin asked me to come back at that time. He said, hey, come back and run the company. What he meant was come back and help. Yeah. And Under Armour was growing far more rapidly than its infrastructure. It didn't have a strategic direction. We didn't have really an HR, organized HR effort. There was just a lot that needed to be done. We had great people, great people in product development. We had great people in marketing. We had great people in operations. We, we just had a really strong team, but it wasn't as organized as everybody wanted it to be. So Kevin and the board asked if I would come back. I had actually left the firm I founded, the venture capital firm I founded. I had done that for 25 years and said, you know, for me, is this all there is? And I went through my own discernment of doing something different. And I was in the middle of that. And they said, why don't you come back here and help us reorganize? And I had just gotten uh, remarried at the time, literally that year. And my wife is a professional and she has a lot of things on her bucket list, but moving back to Baltimore, as she said, wasn't on the list at the time. And so, so anyway, Nancy and I did move back to Baltimore and bought a house in downtown Baltimore next Mm -hmm. to the Under Armour headquarters. Because if I was going to be camp counselor to 5,000 young people at Under Armour, they needed to know that I was all in. That was the culture. And when Mm -hmm. we were doing work at 2 o'clock in the morning, there were 22-year-olds or 25-year-olds, and I'm right there with them, as are other executives. That is the culture. There is no time. Mm -hmm. You put it all in, all the time. And so I did go back and spend about three and a half years 
in that reorganization effort. It was never meant to be a you know long term because I was my job was really to put people in positions to succeed mm-hmm. and do the best I can to do that. So we hired a lot of people. We developed a strategic group. I ran e-commerce as part of, you know, there's a portfolio that I, I own. We put ourselves into e-commerce at the time. There was just a lot of change that was going on. That was just a, it was a real joy and an honor to be in with this group of people, both the leaders and the young people were really mm. terrific. Wow. I want to go back a second. You just said something that really hit me. You said that you were going through your own thing about, is this all there is? After your 25 years in venture capital? Right. Do you mind talking about that for a second? Sure. I, we all have a journey. Uh-huh. And my early journey, it would be an Instagram success today. You know, Ivy League, Wall Street, Bain, blah, you know, venture, the youngest venture partner. And on the outside, it looked perfect. And I'll tell you, Eric, on the inside, I was churning. It was far from perfect. I was in over my head. I had way too much responsibility. Running a venture fund at age 31, what did I know? Nothing. I also wasn't talking to people about it. And so I got very lucky. I knew Don Fisher from The Gap. because I went to school with his son and another iconic investor, Warren Hellman, sat down with him one day and I started crying. And I just said, I suck. I stink. I don't, da, 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 da. You know, I don't even know why you're here with me. You can't help me. I should give the money back. I shouldn't be running this fund. And they started smiling. They started laughing. And I said, what are you laughing? I'm, 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 I'm sitting here. <laughs> you're and, pouring your heart out. <laughs> heart out. And, and, and I'm worn out and says, hey, <laughs> you think that's bad? Let me tell you my story. And Don said, by the way, Chip, now that you've opened up, we'll be happy to help you. We have one piece of advice for you. If we agree on what you should do, we suggest you do it because that'll make us feel useful. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> tell me anything. You tell me to do a backflip off the Golden Gate Bridge because it's going to help us. I'm in. So anyway, but it was the first time I had ever been vulnerable. First time I had ever thought about like, why was I doing what I was doing? First time I'd ever shared. And it really changed the direction. You know, over the next 20 years, I continued to learn. But my personal growth was as important as my career growth. And that was a big shift in my life. Some people get it earlier, some people get it later. But about 35 years old, I realized I was, quote, successful if you want to look at position and money. But if you want to look at quality of life and how I was treating the people around me, I was a good guy. People really enjoy it. I mean, I'm a, I, people thought of me as a guy with good character. Mm-hmm. But inside, I'm thinking about my ambition to be successful and not be bankrupt like my dad. And that had to all get unpacked. And I had to go on my own personal journey of just saying, what's most important to me? Mm-hmm. So my kids were incredibly important to me. But then my health became more important to me. My emotional health became important. Fitness became important. And so over time, the things that became important to me changed. And after 25 years in venture, I had a really wonderful group of people I worked with, but it just wasn't filling my soul to be looking at, you know, a hundred deals every week or every two weeks and doing one of them, I felt like I wasn't using my gifts the way I might with the remaining time I had in my career in life. So I made a change. Let's talk about a couple of those things there. You talk about your kids, you know, you and I had a chat briefly before about like, you know, what success is and 
do you mortgage it all? And then at the end of your life, your kids hate you. You know, I mean, that's what, that's what I thought about as a coach. I had been around some of the best and I thought about, I don't want to end up old with a bunch of rings and a bunch of trophies. And it really does. No, nobody remembers who won the Super Bowl. You'll take a guess. The Patriots. Let's say five. Who won the Super Bowl six years ago? I don't know. The Patriots. You know, but nobody really remembers this stuff. Who won the World Series thirteen years ago? Nobody remembers. You have to go look that stuff up. the The relationships you create within the organization are great, but what happens to the family? You know. And I saw a lot of my colleagues. This is just personal. I saw a lot of my colleagues lose that divorce. They didn't know their kids. Personally, I didn't want to go through it, but I'm just interested in, you know, what your perspective is on that. Well, Eric, I'm so glad you shared that because that is the journey we're on. That's the conversation we're having tonight. Mm -hmm. This isn't an interview we're sharing. And to your point, think of one NFL Hall of Fame speech that talked about points on the scoreboard or Super Bowls won. Every single one is about the relationships they had. And you think about in music, I mean, you had, you've had on some great folks on your podcast, but Wuhan, I mean, you think about the relationships in her life. You think mm-hmm. about presidents when they're old, they talk about the relationship that Reagan had with Tip O'Neill. And I didn't know that. I had great relationships, but I probably wasn't investing in them. Mm-hmm. And now on the kids front, that was always front and center to me. Because when we went bankrupt, I had two brothers. They were eight and 10 years younger. I took care of them. I raised them. And, and to my own mind, I mean, I did a lot with them. I wanted them to be athletes. So being part of young people's lives was really a natural to me. Mm-hmm. I would say that, you know, did I invest in the other relationships the way that I should have? Eh, you know, I don't know. I was learning. You know, I wasn't 100-0, but I wasn't 50-50 or, you know. So I think that the investment in relationships is something if we could play enough tape of enough people who have done well and maintain relationships. The John Woodens of the world, the John Donahoe's of the world, you know, Mike Shashevsky's of the world. If we could play enough tape of what they value so that people really in this Instagram version where I'm always comparing my inside to your outside, why don't we look at the people who have done both really well mm. and follow that example. And that's what I am trying to do. And, you know, going back to Under Armour, I thought Under Armour was my primary reason for being there. We left with an adopted daughter from East Baltimore and have a grandson now. No way. We did not expect that <laughs> Baltimore was going to enrich all of our lives with Brianna and Casey. Casey hadn't been born when Brianna came into our life. She went down to Hampton College and had the baby, and we didn't think that we thought adoption. You want to be on your path. No, Casey is the, one of the greatest joys that we could, the great, he's a grandson that you could only pray for. Huh. And you just don't know. But frankly, if it had not been for the failure in my early career and, and crying in Don Fisher's office and doing well, but realizing it wasn't filling my soul. Mm. we wouldn't have had the joy of having Brianna and Casey in our lives along with our other five kids who we are devoted to. How about that? That's pretty stinking awesome. And that happened, what, 2014, 15? 
Yeah, I think that we met Brianna in 2011, right? Okay. We, right, we got there. But trust took time to build. Mm-hmm. Brianna is an incredible person. Had been let down a lot given her path in life. Mm-hmm. But we just developed a relationship. It grew into love. Mm. It grew into commitment. And it grew into a bond that is just so deep on both sides. And it grew into our, Nancy and I, putting as much effort into Rihanna's life as we're putting into the lives of our other children because she is one of them. How about that? That is a fantastic story. I was not expecting that. That's so cool. (laughs) Now, you also mentioned you started investing in your health and well-being. And I know you to be somebody that is, I'm not going to say obsessed, but I'm going to say loves health and well-being, loves technology. Like, let's talk about this a little bit. I mean, you've got a lot of things figured out. You've told me some pretty cool things about your own ways of handling your health and well-being. Let's dive into that for a few minutes. Well, first, I have to correct you. You said I have a lot of things figured out. I believe that life's journey is trying to figure out the things. And the older you get, the more you realize how little you know. So I don't, I don't agree. <laughs> okay. okay, okay. But, you know, I'll tell you where, I, you know, where I am today. So, hey, listen, I have always been an exercise nut. Okay. I loved exercise. I, I hated marathons, but I did them because friends were doing them. And I wasn't, and speed is not my friend. But I have always exercised throughout my entire life. When you talk about health, though, there's an integrated path to health that I wasn't seeing at the time. You know, today I think of health very intentionally as spiritual, physical, emotional, mental health. And when I think about this, and I was informed again, good friend John Donahoe has a great story, but I had that same experience where health is probably the single greatest investment we can make in ourselves we want to be world-class at what we do. Mm-hmm. Now think about this. An athlete prepares 10 hours for every hour he performs. So does a pianist or a violinist. 10 to 15 hours of practice for every hour they perform. And they consume help. An athlete has a nutrition coach. They have a strength coach. They have a and a mental attitude coach. They consume help and they practice. But the narrative of us in business and finance and company CEOs is, I don't need to invest in health. I'm, I'm strong. I only need five hours of sleep. And we never bring our best to what we do. I wasn't bringing my best to what I did, my life, my family, my career. And I realized that because of it was a high-stress career for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I had to learn through failure and challenges and my own not feeling very healthy that you know, doing an hour-and-a-half workout, training for triathlons, was really important to me. It really was important to me. But so was emotional health. So was making sure that if I had things on my mind, I could figure out a framework to consider them my spiritual health, and why was I really here? What am I doing here of value? It was really important to me. And my attitude every day when I wake up and go out went from wanting to be successful to wanting to do my best today. 
And that started about only 20 years ago. Think about that. I was probably chasing success until I was 45, then chasing doing my best each day and investing in myself to do my best each day. And I don't look back with any regrets because I am where I am today here talking to you. I love my life. A lot of learning though along the way. So if you were to go back, or let's just don't say go back, let's say right now you were to take over a a corporate culture, okay? Knowing what you know about health and well-being, would you restructure the workday? Would you be more in tune to your employees and how they're managing their health? I'm just curious about that because I know for myself, being self-employed now, and it's, you know, everything's on you. I have to like give myself permission to go, okay, I'm going to work in this productivity. I call them productivity sprints. I have sprints and then I rest and then I sprint and then I have rest. I'll go work out. I'll come back. And I just find that maybe those six hours of real high intensity work are so, I'm getting so much more done than I would if I just trudged through my day. I'm just very curious, like what practices would you put in place for an organization to make sure that they're spiritually, physically, emotionally healthy so that they could be more productive for the organization, for themselves and for their families? You know, Eric, you just said the magic word. I do it in reverse order for themselves, their families and their organizations, because Mm -hmm. you cannot do well at your organization if you're not doing well at home. Mm. And when you say, what would I do if I were involved in a company? Every company is different. Every culture is different. But there is a principle that if you want to be your best at what you do, you need to invest in yourself physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. That principle would guide the company. How they do it would differ by company and by Google can invest a lot more because of their margins and somebody else can. But the idea that that is a principle that we're going to bring our best here because we're bringing our best to each day and we need to invest in our best each day would clearly be part of the culture. Hmm. I love it. It's easy to say, and Howard Biart says this, it's easy to say we care. But what about when it costs us something? What about when it costs us time? What about when it costs us margin? What about when it costs us profit? Do we care then? And I think that what some companies have done that have turned the industries they're in on their ear is they invest in their people and it ends up working out that they become the best. It's a big risk, but the Costco's of the world, the Southwest Airlines of the world, the Patagonia's of the world, there are a hundred companies that we study in our leadership foundation, and they're doing that. They're investing in their employees first so they can serve their customers best so their customers want to keep coming back. Mm. It's a different paradigm. More people are moving toward that. I love it. Even if you were just a selfish human being, let's just say you're just purely bottom line driven. It would only make sense that to get the most productivity out of people, that you would create the conditions in the environment that would lend itself to that. Now, if you're a person that has great character and you care about others, then you can, it just only makes it something that you would even look forward to doing. You know what I'm saying? But scaling it based upon your, you know, how much resources you have to work with. 
you've mentioned it twice, and I'm really excited to ask about this. The Center for Conscientious Leadership. Why did you co-found this? So three of us founded this Center for Conscientious Leadership about five years ago. I was the driver of this idea for the first couple of years or so. The reason I founded it, I partly told you my own journey, Mm -hmm. that I had a lot of capability. I had good character, but I didn't know myself. And because I didn't know myself, I had much outward success, but not as much fulfillment. And so I wasn't bringing that to be my best each day. When I started sharing, I realized how many other people felt the same way I did, that they weren't as self-aware as they wanted to be. And they were, everybody's doing different things to do that. But I've spent my whole life, Eric, around young people. And back at Under Armour, we had 5,000 of them. And I had people coming in each night, great people in a great company saying, why am I here? I had a young woman who said, I'm never going to find a partner in Baltimore. I'm running this part of the brand. I'm miserable. I love the company. Why am I here? And it all came down to they didn't have a purpose that they were aware of. And they weren't doing things that were fulfilling because they were chasing three things. They were chasing money. They were chasing accomplishment. And they were chasing what people thought of them. And the more we kept looking at this, and the more then I have had the gift of having a lot of the nation's business leaders and a lot access to a lot of folks in both business, military, clergy, and it's just part of what I was doing in my career. And I was started talking to them, and they said, "Look, it's a big, it's it's almost today's world where kids are plugged in twenty four seven, and the whole Instagram version of themselves, their insides being compared in their minds to everybody else's outsides." We realized that. Kids were being driven to be successful with even less chance of fulfillment. And there was a Jesuit. There was a former president of Starbucks, the former head of the Navy SEALs, and my co-founders, F. Martin, you know, the former advisor to Jobs and Gates at Goldman Sachs, but a life devoted to mentorship of young people. And my wife, Nancy. Accomplished for sure, but it really, who Nancy is, her character her devotion to developing young people, her wisdom. You know, I call her my North Star for a reason. That was the beginning group. And I said, why don't we do something? And they all said, why don't we take a year and see what we might develop? And we now have this framework about developing leaders of integrity and impact through leading ourselves first. Hmm. The key thing here is... Same thing you and I were talking about, investing in yourself. This is not leadership 101. This is not leadership theory. This is bringing your best character, bringing your best self to lead yourself first and then let other people follow so that you have the power of influence because of who you are, not the power of your position because of what you are. And it's really, really important that we, we believe that we take these group of capable, hungry kids, young people, it's 35 years old, you know, 25 to 35 year old kids, and we surround them with leaders to inspire them. And we surround them with frameworks that we've taken from the greatest leadership organizations in the world, the three military academies in the United States and others. And we continually develop 
the different aspects of them to be leaders of integrity impact. And where is this housed again? It's in Silicon Valley today. Mm -hmm. We do have different members because of COVID are now living around, but it's been primarily centralized in Silicon Valley. We just started a a new development program at the request of our members, our 25 to 35-year-old members, called Self-Discovery and Character Development. And we are doing it in very close partnership with the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, and West Point. How about that? That's over 300 years of lessons learned, and they are so excited to take the lessons that they've learned and bring it to the civilian professional world. And they're pretty excited about some of the things that we do a little bit deeper than they do. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the scale is 90-10 in our favor. You know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're trying to be nice and tell me it's a little bit more even, but it is an extraordinary gift we are able to bring to young people who want to invest in themselves to be great at this leadership journey. How is this funded? If people are interested in their listening to this, is there ways that they can give to help support this? We have funded it ourselves to this point. And the reason was, to be honest with you, maybe it goes back to risk, Eric. <laughs> Your question was about risk. I think we wanted to develop it, modify it, redevelop it. We have hundreds of kids that are young people that are constantly in our world. And it has developed into something pretty extraordinary. We mm. didn't know that when we started it. And it wasn't the idea. The idea was not to use other people's money. Yeah. If you're going to take the risk, it's going to be on you. On this one, it's going to be on us. And, um, you know, we, we, we will, as we go forward, we have a vision of the country's most impactful curated library for character development. And what that means is no more than three minutes at a time. And we've got a, a huge selection already, but we want, we want to create that along every topic that, you know, you, you're a parent and you're in a great young company that has potential for impact, there are 10 topics that I I know that you would enjoy listening to McRaven talk to start singing when you're up your neck in mud and what that really meant. No question. The first thing I was thinking about as you were talking about this is like, is this available to everybody else? Because I would definitely love to learn. Our leaders take it, are doing this too, by the way. It's Everybody asks, can I do it? And it's a gift. I can say that it's good because I don't own it. I don't believe that I'm responsible. So many people are involved in this. And I'm one of the people organizing all of this and being a shepherd of it. But I can say it's doing well because we've been given a gift. Mm. And so it's how we use this gift that really is what's humbling. We're not using it as much as we want to be using it. And uh, so we have work to do. I love it. I just love this whole story. I mean, your story is amazing. And I love the fact that you're using your time, your talent, your treasure to serve others now. And that's, that's a great example to be leaving and to be giving. If people do want to support, like, how can they find you? How can they help support this effort? The best thing is just to go learn for us right okay. now. Okay. We have a website, cclglobal.org. And what we tell people is we're not looking for donations. What we're looking for are people who truly resonate with this lifelong journey of leadership. You know, our leaders call it a lifelong journey. 
you're not a leader or not one. You're on a constant journey to develop yourself. And so I think that's the, the, the greatest thing for me is to hear from people that say, wow, this is really interesting. What can I do to learn more? Because we're not a transaction. You know, at this point in life, we're a relationship. And so we're building everything we're doing is based on the relationships we have with people. So, but I appreciate your interest in it. And, uh, you know, I, I love chatting with you because you're, you're so hungry. You know, you, on every front, you know, how you run your company, how you, how you think about your family, how you think about fitness, how you think about how do you monitor fitness so that people can make changes in the lives. I mean, what you're doing is incredibly inspirational to me. So thank you for well, thank you. sharing what you're sharing. Well, I appreciate that. We're, we're aim seven is we're getting there and uh, it's been a lot of fun to help make an impact in people's lives. As you would know, when you get that text message or that email from one of your customers, that's really, it's helped change something. That is the biggest reward. And um, I'm really excited about what we got coming out here. Hopefully end of Q2, middle of Q2. So but you're right. What you said about a customer's text, mm-hmm. yeah, you need millions of customers to make a business work. But when that one person writes to you, and I know many have written to you, Eric, it makes you feel like you're doing something really worthwhile. No question. We keep a log of all of them and I'll go back and read them. You know, so-and-so, I'm now sleeping at night. Or this right. really, you know, when I got this message, it was like this one lady said, it's like a warm hug in the morning. And, and, and when things are tough or it's difficult and you're like, okay, I got to work through this. I, sometimes I just go back and I read those. And I'm like, okay, we're doing it because of this person. Right. And I try to put a name on it. You're, you're killing me. You're killing me. Because now I didn't want to say, I wasn't thinking you were going to go there about these, but... Now, now it makes me want to say, okay, you've collected all these names of all these people that sell these great things. Okay, now I'll help. Let's take those names, go back to those people and say, what more can we do for you that we're not doing today? Yes. Name by name. Let's do it. We'll have to, do, <laughs> we'll have to talk about this offline because you, you got me fired up right now. And this, this could go on for a long time because you and I, I have a kindred spirit with you. I love your fired up mentality. But um, Chip, I just want to thank you so much. It's been a blessing to get to know you. And I'm thankful that you share your story with the Blueprint audience today. And, and I hope that people will go check out the Center for Conscientious Leadership. And there were so many, I, I usually write down notes in here about like, okay, this could be a great opening. I have like 20 of them right now. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this multiple times because there's a lot of things that I personally needed to hear tonight. So I just want to tell you thank you. Well, Eric, the pleasure and the honor was all mine. This conversation is only as good as the person asking the question. So if there's anything good out of it, pat yourself on the back. (laughs) Thank you very much. And you have a great night. We'll be chatting soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, sign up for my high-performance newsletter at www.ericcorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Quorum, Twitter at Eric Quorum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn. 